well. In the past decade, researchers have seen a correlation between chronic methamphetamine use and poor HIV outcomes, especially in sexual and gender minorities. And a 2020 study estimated that people who regularly use methamphetamine account for one in three new transmissions of HIV in this population. Today, to learn more about this, we'll be talking with Dr. Timothy McCager-Hall from UCLA. Dr. Hall is a psychiatrist and anthropologist with the Center for Behavioral and Addiction Medicine in the Department of Family Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine, where he is an associate clinical professor. He is board certified in general psychiatry and in addiction medicine, and has worked on clinical trials of potential treatments for methamphetamine use disorder since 2011. His ethnographic research looks at communities of gay and bisexual men in the Czech Republic and in Los Angeles, including the use of alcohol, nitrate poppers, and other drugs in LGBT communities. He is also currently the senior co-chair of the Association for Queer Anthropology, a section of the American Anthropological Association. Thank you, Dr. Hall, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So let's get started. What is the incidence of methamphetamine use in sexual and gender minorities who have sex with men? And has it changed in the past decade? Before I answer that question, I want to give a little bit of background and some caveats about why it's difficult to have accurate numbers about these particular questions, and also the importance of not lumping all sexual and gender minorities together, mm. which has been increasingly popular in certain venues. Uh, because gender and sexual minorities do have a number of things in common in regard to certain kinds of stigma that they may face, certain civil rights issues. But in terms of health issues, they often have very different sorts of concerns and different sorts of health-relevant behaviors and different rates. Whenever we're talking about rates of anything in sexual and gender minority populations, that is lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender, and, and other non-heterosexual, non-cisgender populations, any number needs to be taken with a grain of salt, with a large error bar, that is to say a large interval in which the number may not be completely accurate. And you need to look very carefully at what we call in public health, the denominator, that is, what is the number that this number is being taken out of? So for instance, back in the day, let's say going back to the 60s and 70s, when there was very little research done on LGBT health in general, most of what was being done was case studies of people who came into clinical attention. So the assumption was basically, if you were LGBT and you showed up in front of a doctor, it was because there was something seriously wrong. Mm. And so that gave massively skewed understandings of mental health and behavioral health issues for LGBT people. In the 80s and 90s, researchers were trying to get a handle on risk factors, protective factors for the HIV AIDS epidemic. They started doing more behavioral health research on LGBT populations, but since there is no national registry of LGBT people, and therefore no easy way to do a representative sample, 
they would go and literally stand outside of gay bars and nightclubs and sex clubs and interview people going in and out. Mm. And as you can imagine, that gave some very elevated numbers for how many LGBT people were likely using excessive alcohol or using recreational drugs. Mm. But that would be like trying to get an estimate for how many people in the general population have a problem with alcohol by standing outside of the most popular bars in town on a Saturday night. Mm. You're going to get some very skewed numbers. Yeah. For the last two decades, about roughly, things have been somewhat better in that a number of national or other large representative health surveys have tried to ask about sexual orientation or sexual behavior and gender identity. And they have gotten numbers that, among other things, start getting closer to the general population numbers for a lot of health behaviors. So you probably is looking like it's more as you get more representative of LGBT communities, their health factors look more like the general population than they did with those very skewed studies in the past. However, there are still a lot of problems. And without getting too much into the weeds, if you get to a really small number of people, even in a big national representative survey, it gets really hard to know how much you can generalize from that. So like, if you have one Yemeni family in a survey of 10,000 people nationally, can you say what Yemeni Americans are likely to do based on that one family? Not really. Similarly, if you have only a small number of particularly transgender people in a survey, it's really hard to know how to extrapolate from that. And while gay and lesbian and bisexual people and transgender people are fairly randomly distributed in the population in terms of families that they are born into, whether people come out publicly has something to do on attitudes in the community that they're living in. And a number of LGBT adults tend to move towards places where they are going to be more welcomed. So if you're doing a nationally representative sample, you may still miss people because LGBT adults are not necessarily evenly distributed throughout the population in all the ways that you would want to try to sample. Mm. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds with this. I did a postdoc with people who were working on a lot of these issues at University of Chicago a number of years ago. So I care about this a lot, but it makes it really difficult to say really precisely for sex and gender minority individuals, populations, just what these exact numbers are. So when people will say things like 3.24% of gay and bisexual men in a survey of a general population reported using methamphetamine, it's hard to know how accurate that number really is. Mm-hmm. All of that said, during the last decade or two, estimates for how many gay and bisexual men, that is how many men who have male sexual partners in the United States who are adults, how many of them use methamphetamine in the last 12 months, the numbers have ranged from 
about one and a half or two percent for gay and bisexual men in their uh, late teens and twenties to up to as much as 12% overall for men who have sex with men overall. The 12% is probably an overly high number. And the different numbers have varied a bit over time. For comparison, though, estimates of how many people in the general population, how many adults over 18 in the general population have used methamphetamine in the last 12 months it's usually less than 1%. Mm. So gay and bisexual men in the United States are probably using methamphetamines at a rate that's somewhere between 4 and 12 or 14 times as frequently as people in the general population. Mm. Though you need to bear in mind that that's 3 to 14 times a still fairly low number, a little less than 1%. But it does mean that in terms of the health impacts, all things being equal, uh, methamphetamines have a significantly bigger impact on particularly gay male communities. Transgender women who have male partners and transgender men who have male partners tend to look like gay men in terms of many other health behaviors. And many other health risks. And their use of methamphetamines is probably on the same order or close to that of cisgender men who have male partners. Use among lesbians is probably significantly lower. This would be a topic for another podcast because it's an area of interest of mine, but there are very few studies that are specifically looking at health behaviors in bisexual individuals specifically. And there are a lot of different ways of thinking of yourself for being classified by someone else as bisexual. So it gets hard to say. But for for men who have sex with men, on the whole, it, it is a significant issue and much higher risk, uh, much higher impact than it is for a lot of other communities in the U.S. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. And thank you for clarifying the difference between like the different categories, I guess, of sexual and gender minorities at the beginning. So next, what are the rates of HIV seroconversion in men who have sex with men who use methamphetamine regularly? That is a good question. They are significantly elevated over baseline, but there's been a range of different estimates as to the specific risk. And I would be reluctant to give a specific number for risk because it depends on a lot of factors and different studies have come up with a lot of different estimates. What they all agree on is that it is a significant multiplying factor in terms of overall HIV risk. That is, if you are a man or a cis man, or a transgender woman, or a transgender man who has male partners, your risk of getting HIV in the next couple of years goes up significantly if you are also using methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. And there are probably a number of different factors that go into that. So building off on that, how might methamphetamine use increase the risk of transmitting HIV and other sexually transmitted infections? 
So there are several different mechanisms. The mechanism that seems the most obvious may actually not be the most important. The most obvious hypothesis is that like other recreational drugs and alcohol, using methamphetamine tends to make people more impulsive and less likely to exercise good judgment. There was an old joke in psychiatry that the, the superego is the part of the, the mind that dissolves in alcohol. That is, your, your conscience and your judgment are the part of your mind that kind of go away when you get intoxicated. And methamphetamine in particular tends to elevate people's sex drive and tends to make people fairly impulsive. Mm. So the thought is that, early thought was that if you're using meth, you are more likely to have sex without a condom. You are more likely to accept an invitation for sexual activity with someone that you've just met or someone that you barely know or someone that you might not hook up with under other circumstances if you weren't intoxicated. However, it turns out that there might be a lot of other things going on as well. One interesting observation made by some medical anthropologists back in the 90s was that, as I said, when people are high on methamphetamines, they tend to be very impulsive and they also tend to fiddle with things and pick at things and act on suggestions very quickly. So one thing is that one difference between people who inject opioids like heroin and people who inject stimulants like methamphetamine is that people who inject heroin, opioids, the heroin tends to make you kind of sleepy, feel very mellow, feel very relaxed, and you tend to take the needle out and put it down or possibly even just sort of get very sleepy and let the needle fall to the floor, which is bad for many reasons, but the needle's out of you. Mm. Whereas an observation is that a number of people who are injecting stimulants actually will find themselves like fiddling around with the needle mm. and like playing with the needle, poking themselves again, playing with the plunger. I don't want to be graphic here, but like one of the big risk factors in injecting drugs is that if someone is sharing needles, which they often do because it's hard to get clean needles, and there are some issues that go into that, including some unfortunate unintended consequences of policing behaviors, where if you are found with needles on you, that can be used as evidence that you are in planning to use an illicit drug or that you might be selling an illicit drug. And therefore, people who are injecting drugs have an incentive to keep as few needles as possible and maybe even only have one person in the group have a needle on them because it mm. reduces the risk of everyone else getting arrested. Mm. So there, some of those behaviors like picking, like playing around with the needle may actually make it more likely to get to transmit HIV or hepatitis for people who are injecting stimulants than for people who might be injecting other recreational drugs. Another thing that happens is that methamphetamine use, as I said, 
tends to significantly increase sex drive. However, it also makes it more difficult for males to maintain erections and more difficult to have sex using condoms. And so you have someone who is has a very high sex drive in that moment, is not going to be able to have sex while using a condom and has very reduced inhibitions. They're not thinking very clearly, not making great judgments. And so much more likely to have sex without a condom. There's also been, and I think that you had alluded to this in some of the materials you sent while we were setting up this interview, that there is some evidence that methamphetamine itself might have biological effects in making people more likely to contract HIV if they're exposed. Hmm. There are several different lines of research looking at in vitro, that is laboratory-based studies, where they put some methamphetamine into some immune cells and they expose them to HIV or they take immune cells from people who are living with HIV and put methamphetamine in there or other measures measuring immune functions in people who are living with HIV and who are actively using meth. And all of these sort of lean towards an idea that methamphetamine may have some effects on immune cells that make them more likely to get infected or make them more likely to shed virus, that is, release virus, even if someone is taking HIV medications. Mm. And so it's possible that there are biological effects directly on the immune function that have something to do with it. Also, people who are using meth tend to have or are more likely to have or more open to having sex with multiple partners. They tend to be awake for long periods of time. So I have talked with participants in some of our methamphetamine studies when we're we're trying to do the timeline. We're trying to figure out, like, what have they done over the last week, several days since they last saw us? How many times have they used? And so on. And they'll say things to me like, Dr. Hall, you normies, you normal people mm-hmm. who don't use, you, you think in terms of days. And that's not how it works when you use math a lot. When you use math, you may go in these sprees of like three to seven days where you're pretty much awake most of the time and you're using meth every few hours and you're very awake and you don't really know whether it's night or day sometime. It would be kind of like being in Las Vegas for days at a time on lots of caffeine. You kind of aren't paying attention and then you crash. Mm. And so that, that can be very disruptive. Among other things, it's very disruptive to to being able to stay on their HIV meds if they know that they have an HIV diagnosis and they've been prescribed medication. But also while they're doing that, methamphetamine tends to decrease your sensations of thirst and hunger. And so they often don't eat or drink very much. They can get very dehydrated. And that can obviously make the the mucous membranes in in your mouth and other parts of your body more likely to get damaged from any sort of friction, maybe more likely to admit HIV virus if you're exposed. So there are a lot of different 
a lot of different factors that seem to be going on. And there is some active research now to try to tease out which of those might be most important. But there are lots of ways that methamphetamine seems to increase HIV risk. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for that great description of the factors. I thought that was really interesting, especially because some of them don't seem that obvious. But yeah. Um, So in those who are HIV positive already, does Mm -hmm. methamphetamine use affect HIV outcomes? And if so, how? It does look like it affects HIV outcomes, and it does it probably in several ways. One, as I said, there is some evidence. I'm actually a well, staff physician on a long-term cohort study that's being done at UCLA called M-Study, which mm-hmm. has been going on for about seven or eight years now and will probably go on for another couple of years. One of the things that we are trying to look at is actually to get a better sense of what kinds of effects methamphetamine use has on outcomes for people who are living with HIV. Like I said, being in those sort of freeze of methamphetamine use that run two or three to like five days, and then you crash and sleep for a couple of days, seems to be very disruptive to people being able to stay on their medications. Most modern HIV treatments are combinations of several medications that interfere with the HIV uh, virus replication, plus usually a medication that slows down how fast your body gets rid of those medications, so you can take those medications once a day. But it's really important that someone living with HIV be able to take those medications once a day. And some of them need to be taken with food, where again, if you're kind of disorganized and from the methamphetamine use and you don't know exactly what time it is, and you might not have remembered to go shopping because you've been so distracted by the stuff that you're doing while you're using meth, there might not be any food. You might not have the pills with you. You might be hooking up with someone across town. And you're doing one thing and another while you're high on meth, and suddenly it's two or three days later, and you've missed a couple of doses, and you don't have the meds with you. Mm. So that is one thing. It can also, obviously, if you're having a lot of disruption to your life like that, it's going to be harder to make it to appointments with your doctor. It's going to be harder to get to the pharmacy on a regular basis to pick up your medication. Another institutional effect that's not a direct effect of the meth on the person is that people who are using methamphetamine are much more likely to be involved with the justice system. They're obviously much more likely than someone not using meth to be picked up by the police for being publicly intoxicated or having drug paraphernalia on them. And so if you get arrested and taken to jail, you may not want to announce to everyone in the jail that you're living with HIV. And so many people who are incarcerated for any length of time, particularly people who are incarcerated for short lengths of time in jail, may be separated from their medications for days or weeks at a time while they're going in and out of jail because they they don't want to announce it to people around them or they don't trust the jail medical system 
or the jail medical system may be so understaffed that they don't even get around to processing people properly. So that can be a disruption. And if you are living on Medicaid, Medi-Cal in California, the federal health insurance plan for people who make under the poverty limit or close to the poverty limit, if you get arrested, you are temporarily dropped from Medicaid. And so if that happens when you're about due to go to one of your doctor's appointments or about due to pick up your medication, that is going to be disrupted as well until you're out of jail and get it sorted out. Unless you can get it while you're in jail, that is get the medication while you're in jail. And then again, when you get discharged from jail, it takes a while before your Medicaid can be reinstated. So that's heavily disruptive. Yeah. Thank you for that overview again. So what are some strategies that we can use to help prevent and treat HIV in this population? One strategy that has had some potential progress in the last couple of years is a medication combination cabotegravir and ropivirine. The brand name is Cabinuva, which is an injectable HIV medication. Uh, This medication is used in two ways. It's been approved for HIV prevention and also approved for HIV treatment. And the dosing is slightly different depending on which one it is. So I want to check because they're still very new medications. But one is every two months and one is every three months. But they are long-acting in medications. There are clinical trials for some other antiretroviral medications that could be given as injections at even longer intervals. And so for people who are living with HIV, who are potentially unstably housed or intermittently involved with the justice system or have other really significant disruptions in their lives that are interfering with their ability to take a pill every day, being able to get this injection every few months could potentially be a real game changer. The Medicaid, the long-acting injectable was only approved very recently, so we need some more time to see what that's going to do on a population level, but it is a really exciting development. Yeah. Obviously, trying to get people into treatment for their methamphetamine use disorder and maybe other problems that they may have is obviously key in the long run, but that's a more difficult task. We don't have really great treatments for methamphetamine use disorder. Mm. We have some treatments. We do have some treatments that work, but they work at much lower rates and take much longer than our treatments for a number of other addictive disorders. So for instance, I was a staff physician on a study that was published a few years ago of relatively high dose of an antidepressant called bupropion, uh, which is known by the brand name Wellbutrin, among others, and injectable naltrexone, which is an opioid blocker that is used to treat both opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder. And if you combine the two, we got about an 11% remission rate in people with moderate or severe methamphetamine use disorder after 12 weeks, which 
sounds pretty unimpressive until you realize that it's about three times better than the next best treatment for methamphetamine use disorder. Mm. Uh, behavioral treatment is really the mainstay. Uh, the medications seem like they may help some people, but it's it's hard to access high-quality behavioral therapies mm. just in general. Thanks. So finally, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Methamphetamine is more commonly used in some LGBT populations, particularly, as I said, cisgender males who have male partners and trans males and trans women who have male partners in particular, partly because it is used to by a number of people to self-medicate a lot of negative experiences that they may have. People who have a lot of internalized homophobia, people who have a lot of negative feelings about their sexuality, guilt about having non-heterosexual sex at all, people who have concerns about body image. Patients of mine have told me again and again that one of the big appeals of starting methamphetamine was that it temporarily took those feelings away. Mm. And so you have a lot of men who have sex with men and trans men and trans women who have male partners who start using it because they're offered it by a sexual partner and they find out that it addresses a lot of negative feelings that they have, a lot of which are coming from sort of negative societal attitudes mm. of homophobia and very particular kinds of body images that people are trying to live up to. And so there is that backdrop. There is also the historical issue that LGBT communities for hundreds of years have been partly structured around bars and nightclubs this is going back at least to the 18th century in Western Europe and at least the 19th century in cities in China and Japan and probably farther back, mm. that these places were often the easiest way to access any kind of an LGBT community and to find other people like yourself who would be sympathetic or supportive and to find romantic and sexual partners. And so there is this backdrop that until very recently, there are a lot of institutions in LGBTQ communities around the world have involved alcohol and partly because of the alcohol, partly because the drugs have various uses in those settings, partly because these bars and clubs have been partly underground anyway. And when you're already engaged in some semi-illegal activities, other illegal activities tend to sort of gravitate there. And your bar for trying illicit or prohibited things is a little lower if you already know that simply being gay or simply not experiencing yourself as, as having a conventional gender identity or expression matching what you're assigned at birth, if if those are already illegal, if you can already be hauled in by the cops for 
sitting at a table with a same-sex partner or wearing clothing that the cops don't think you should be wearing, mm. the additional threshold to try some cannabis that someone is offering you and then maybe try something a little stronger than that that someone is offering you is a lot lower than it might be if LGBT communities were totally accepted in the mainstream. Yeah. That has shifted started shifting in the very late 90s and 2000s with the rise of online dating apps and probably intensified with social media. It is unclear what this is going to look like for Zoomers and Generation Alpha, because we have certainly seen a decline in those sorts of institutions, the gay bars and nightclubs that were the mainstay of LGBTQ communities for decades, if not centuries, those have really been declining over the last 20 years. And it's not clear what kind of a net effect that is going to have on substance use in LGBTQ communities overall. You might hypothesize that it's probably going to decrease alcohol and drug consumption. However, the flip side is that there's probably some decrease in community building and social support because back in the day, when one was coming out, one tended to go to these bars and you might hope that you would meet someone that you would fall in love with and maybe end up dating and ideally spend the rest of your life with. But while you were waiting, you tended to make a lot of friends yeah. and you tended to meet a lot of people and you tended to learn about LGBT specific culture. And there was a lot of resilience in that. It's not clear how that's going to be the same and how that's going to be different with younger generations connecting largely over social media. Or some of the research that I was doing in Los Angeles was with men who have sex with men who don't identify as gay. And they were a very heterogeneous group. They had a lot of different reasons for why they were seeking male partners and why they didn't identify as gay. Many of them also had female partners, but quite a lot of them were not particularly plugged into any kind of LGBTQ community, nor did they want to be. And so what I have seen with younger acquaintances is that they tend to be less plugged in with various sorts of LGBT institutions. And so there's going to be less of that exposure in the bars to various kinds of drugs and alcohol, but there's also going to be a lot less community mm. and a lot less social support mm. and a lot less being advised informally by older LGBTQ people. Uh, you know, you use meth, you tends to get really out of control and people tend to have bad situations. And let me tell you about four friends of mine that had bad outcomes with that. So maybe think twice. So we're really in a brave new world with a lot of exploration of different kinds of sexual and gender identities and communities, many of them mediated through social media and other virtual spaces. And 
it's not at all clear to me where it's going. And this is something that I have followed as an anthropologist close to 25 years and as a clinician for about 16. So it's, it's a brave new world. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Dr. Hall, for this wonderful overview of methamphetamine use and HIV. And I'd love to have you back again to talk more about the subject in the future. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Thank you. Thank you.